Welcome to the God Made It Easy On Me podcast, a series in which figures from music, film, television and politics talk football, and specifically, their lifelong support for their favourite clubs. We'll be looking back over the decades at the highs and lows of their support, the successes, the failures, the great players, the politics and the huge changes the sport has seen in their time. Our first episode is with lifelong Liverpool fan and lead singer of the farm, Peter Hooten. Over the next hour, you'll hear him take a trip through his time supporting one of world football's most iconic clubs, from Rome to Istanbul, Shankly to Klopp, and everywhere in between. He gives the inside story on the highs and lows of his time following the Reds. So, Peter, welcome uh, to the God Made It Easy On Me podcast. Um, we're here to talk about your time uh, supporting Liverpool, uh, one of uh, English football's biggest clubs, if not the biggest. Um, I think first and foremost, if you can just give us an idea of, of why Liverpool, you know, obviously you're from the area, but yeah. why Liverpool Football Club? Um, it's through my family, really. Um, my dad was a season ticket holder when I was a kid, and also my granddad was, um, lived right by the ground. So my first memories, really, of football were at field. And uh, um, I think my granddad used to take me to reserve games because you get in with a season ticket on re- at reserve games and yeah. uh, it was they played the reserve games at Anfield uh, and I remember it because I was only young but I fell off I fell off I sat on a crash barrier <laughs> and I fell off it and split my head open oh. so that was my first memory of football um, traumatic memory but also another memory was um, because my granddad and uh, my nan used to live so near to the ground I used to go to the end of the street uh, to see my dad coming back from the match, you know. Uh, so they'd let me as a four-year-old or five-year-old go to the end of the street to all these cars coming from Anfield, you know, yeah. see if I could see my dad. It, it, uh, it was when, you know, in, in the days where they just let kids wander off from their own, you know. <laughs> in, in, in terms of becoming a match-going supporter, how old were you, were you when that happened? happened? Yeah, with me. My dad started taking, my dad was, um, he worked in a place in Liverpool called English Electric and he worked with a fellow called Ray Shelley. And Ray Shelley's dad had been the trainer at Anfield, uh, the old style trainer with the, you know, the white Mac on, you know, or the brown Mac. Uh, and he was a, basically Ray, uh, Ray Shelley used to get tickets off Albert Shelley, you know, and um, that's how I got going to the match really, because my dad would take me into the ground. And we always used to get in the obstructed view in Anfield. It was right in the corner by the cop. Yeah. And the, the great thing about it was, or, or the educational thing about it was, it was next to the boys' pen. And the boys' pen thought, because you would understand, you was some sort of, uh, you know, uh, alien. You know, so all through the match, you'd be getting pelted with, uh, you know, all sorts of debris. Uh, but I always remember when it was in the when it was in the main stand there. I always was fascinated with the green pitch, obviously, and what was going on. But it was also just as fascinated with what was happening with cop, you know. And it was probably late sixties, so it was, um, you know, the cop was in a in a heyday. Really, there was twenty eight thousand of it then, you know. Yeah. And the songs, and the, you know, I, I just always remember thinking, you know, that. I want to be in there one day, you know. It's um, amazing. So then, sorry, go on. It's, it's amazing in terms of the cop, how despite the fact football has changed astronomically since those days, the cop has yeah. retained its its magic and its 
aura through that sometimes. time. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. But I mean, I, I suppose even in those days, I don't know, but it kind of been, you know, I mean, when I was a kid going to the match, I, I progressed to the Anfield Road first. I was probably about 11. Um, and I went to the Anfield Road because I thought it'd be too packed in the cop, you know, for a, a, a kid, really. So we went to the front of the Anfield Road and you'd get in there about half one, two o'clock and, and, and uh, stand in the front of the Anfield Road. But I always remember uh, it was a match. S- trouble had started to happen on the terraces in the early 70s. And that's when it was. But it was a particular match against Everton where... Um, there was a lot of objects getting thrown from Everton fans as they came in into the middle of the Anfield Road. And they were getting thrown, I don't know if they were getting thrown onto the pitch, presumably they were, but they were hitting people at the front of the Anfield Road. So a few people were going down and I was thinking, it's not that safe here anymore, you know? So I started going in the cop. And that was probably uh, early 70s, you know, 72, 73. And obviously, uh, Bill Shankly was 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 manager then. I mean, what does what does Bill can what does Bill Shankly mean to to the people of Liverpool or to, to Liverpool City? Well, I think he uh, he transcended football, Bill Shankly. Uh, I mean, I was brought up um, a Roman Catholic, you know, and I was I'd always been expecting things to change when I was seven because we were always told you do your first confession, do your first Holy Communion, or I feel exactly the same, nothing's changed, you know. But when I heard Bill Shankly speak, I felt different. You know, it was this, for, for, for me, just encapsulated everything, which was great about the game and, 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 and still does, really. I think, you know, he, he was a prophet. He was a prophet. And so us kids, we were, we were looking at what Shankly said, you know. But when we started going to match, it was the second team, you see. So it was 72, 73. We won the league with a nil-nil against Leicester at home and a queued outside and uh, it was hard to get in, but eventually I did get in, probably got in about half one. And we won the uh, league with a nil-nil draw against Leicester. And that was his second great team. And I'll never forget it because for half an hour after the game, all the cops stayed there. We were sitting on a barrier just back from the middle. So we were sitting on a barrier because we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. and there was just this communion between the cop and Shankly. It, was, it went on for a, you know for the eternity. It felt like you know, um, and I've never I've never witnessed anything before or since like that. Uh, it was Shankly's name got sang more or less for half an hour. It's the famous footage of where he goes around the pitch, you know, when he starts off, he goes towards down the road and then comes up towards the cop. And someone throws a scarf and a policeman kicks the scarf and he kicks, he, he, kick, he says to the policeman, what are you doing? That's someone's life. And now the salute for the champions and for Bill Shankly, who takes off his jacket to reveal a characteristic red shirt. This is the man they love. The cop rise. And Shankly responds, a great day for him. And a great, great day for them. And now listen to the roar as they approach the cop. And this 
great communion between players and supporters, all one now, on a great day in the history of Liverpool football. That's where the heart of Liverpool football beats. anybody who had a bad way for Shankly. I can't, you know, even Evertonians, even though they might have begrudged some of his sayings, you talk to most Evertonians of a certain age, they go, you know, they loved Bill Shankly, you know, and that to cross over, even though he was very cruel to uh, Everton and he'd pull the curtains if we were playing at the end of the road. But at the end, at the end of the day, um, Shankly uh, was loved on Merseyside generally. I think he would have gone into politics, you know, he would have swept to power, you know. He hated politics, he didn't like politicians really, but he, he, you know, he was a socialist with the, you know, he was a, his heart was in socialism and collectivism. Did you, did, did, did you get a shock when he resigned in 74, you know? Um... Yeah, I was, I was inconsolable, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. It was the JFK moment for us, like, you know, we and there's, there's that famous footage with uh, Andy H. Wilson, Tony Wilson from Gunnar's Report, who later became famous with uh, Factory Records, interview people and going, hey, you're joking at you. And we tracked that lad down. He had a feather cut. He's bald now, you know, but we tracked him down for the Shankly documentary because he was saying, no, no, it can't happen. You know, we were thinking there must be another reason. Nobody really knows the reason to this day. I think uh, not even his family do, you know. And we had uh, Karen Gill, his granddaughter, involved in the documentary. And she said, there's no family secret. He just, you know, I think he, he was always on the verge of resigning. It was Matt Busby in the early days who kept him at Anfield because he kept on wanting to resign because he wasn't, the club didn't share his vision. When they, when they appointed Bill Shanky, I think they were appointing someone with the thought who'd work well with young players, who'd work well with their potential, who'd eventually be able to coach a team that might be able to compete a little bit and get them out the second division. They didn't realise what they were getting. They were getting someone who was a whirlwind. He totally revolutionised the club, you know. And I think they resented that in many ways, even though they had great success with them. You know, they were, they were quite content, my dad said, in the second division where they were getting great gates, you know, 30, 40,000, uh, but they had no ambition. They convinced Shankly they had ambition. And he, within 18 months, he realised, he thought, they don't have any ambition. It wasn't until another, so Matt Busby kept him there, Man United manager, and it wasn't until Eric Sawyer came to the club. I don't know if you know about Eric Sawyer, but he was the financial director of Littlewoods and Littlewoods um, Empire, it's like dealing with Amazon or Microsoft or whatever. He was the financial director and John Moores was uh, elected chair of Everton in 1961. So he nominated the shares at Anfield uh, to Eric Sawyer, who was the financial director. Eric Sawyer came in, Shankly got on with him, yeah, got on with him great straight away. And he said, that was the best sign I ever made because Eric Sawyer could see what I wanted. He had the vision and he was able to uh, convince the rest of the board. They were very, very conservative, very frugal. Merseyside at the time was dominated by Everton. Everton were known as the Mersey millionaires. Um, they were buying players for £35,000. When Shankly tried to get St John and Roy Utes, the board was dismissing them, 
saying, no, they're Everton players. They, they, they can afford them players. We can't afford them. I think Liverpool have only ever gone to 15, 18,000 at the very most. He wanted, Shankly, first of all, wanted Jack Charlton. So the very fact that he wanted Jack Charlton would have like reduced lead strength in the future uh, because he couldn't get Jack Charlton. I think it was £20,000 and they wouldn't pay it. But when Eric Sawyer came in, it was a game changer. Where do you think Liverpool would be without Shankly now? Do you think it would be the club that it is? Uh, no way. No way. I mean, he built the foundations, he built everything. You know, I think Paisley even said, didn't he? Who built it or I just put the roof on, you know? I think that's the one thing that haunts at Shankly. I think the fact that he never won the European Cup, he would have been the first manager to have won it. And it was that famous match in 65 which uh, the referee uh, was, was accused of corruption and uh, no doubt. But I mean, Tommy Smith actually kicked him, didn't he? Yeah. After the game, he actually kicked him up, up the backside uh, and didn't get any disciplinary, you know, after, you know, I think it was, it's fairly obvious that there was a lot of, uh, you know, I think he might have been, uh, he might have been bought, you know, but, um, I think Shankly, you know, that, that haunted him, obviously. Yeah. But um, he, for, for a manager to build a side, to get out the second division, first of all, and then within a few years to win the league, and then the FA Cup, which is the Holy Grail, and then build another team, the team that was based around, you know, Keegan um, and Ray Clements and MNU's players like that, you know, is, is, is incredible, you know. People always put... Best shit, best manager ever, best Liverpool manager ever. They always put Paisley or then Dag. I, I always put Shanky because without Shanky, there's nothing. And you don't live every minute of the day to keep fit, and you don't think about the game all the time, then really and truly you shouldn't be in the game. You're an imposter. I was going to say, how would you start to sum up the the character and personality of Bill Shankly? Oh, um, not easy, because uh, for anybody who's been close to him, I, th I think with myself, uh, every, every player had a different relationship with him. It was always very good, but it, it was based on different things. I think with myself, because m my father was a miner, and of course he came from Glenbrook, which was a mining village, all his family worked down the mines. I think he had an immediate sort of... Uh, he cared about me a little bit, and uh, he took a lot of time with me. Um, motivated me unbelievably. I mean, I, I can remember training, the second week I was training there, and he came over to me and he, he just said, son, you'll play for England. And, you know, I'm, I'm not 20 yet, I've not even played for Liverpool. And he said that to me and I thought, wow. How do you feel What's about the news today? What, what's the news? The Shankly's Shankly retired. retired. Oh, yeah. is. What? How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's I'm not kidding you. Shankly has actually retired today. He wants a rest. He's leaving. He's leaving. Well, he's retired. There's a horse retired as well. Yeah, I'm deadly serious. He wants a rest. He's getting out of the game. Yeah, I know, yeah. Is he sick? He must be sick. He's not sick. No, he says he gets very tired. The pressures are great. He wants a rest. Well, this is not enough paper, No, he's announced at 12 o'clock. On the wireless. On the wireless at 12 o'clock. I've just been at a press conference where he announces we were finishing. Is, is that true? It's, it's true. I, well, I swear it's the truth. Honestly, I'm not joking. It's real. Uh, when did he retire? Today. He retired. He's finished today. 
He said, just announced it at the lunchtime today and the board were with him. Bill Shankly is retired. What, did, what did Shankly mean to you? Everything. The game was, of course, a successful one in the FA Cup final win. I don't think we need to go in who was it against. Um, <laughs> we'll quickly yeah. bypass that. That was that was an interesting game because it was total football. And we searched a book uh, called The Boot Room Boys, which was out a couple of years ago. And... Uh, when I was researching that, the boot room had decided they'd been beaten by um, a team in Europe, Red Star, um, um, Red Star Belgrade, uh, and they'd played total football from the back, similar to the uh, the Dutch 74 team, but this was 73, you know, and they had a meeting in the boot room, uh, basically an inquest because they were played off the park yeah. uh, by total football. And they had an inquest after that, and thinking we'll have to go away from the stopper centre half. They'd had Ron Yates, they had Laddie Lloyd, and then yeah, what was coming along was the likes of Phil Thompson, Alan Hansen. You know, that's what they were looking towards. So that was a game changer. That was that was October, November '73. Mm. By '74 May, that was already in. It had already come to fruition. They were playing football from the back. Yeah. I think Tommy Smith was right back at the time. And, uh, I mean, some of the commentary on that from Colton is just unbelievable, isn't it? It's absolutely and, and obviously, uh, uh, Bob Paisley takes over from uh, Shankly, and yeah. and he leads Liverpool to the Holy Grail. You know, yeah. within seven years, you've two European cups. What what are your your memories of the yeah. European adventures? Well, my memories, my first memory of Bob Paisley was uh, I was sitting there having my cornflakes. Uh, and I thought my dad was this font of wisdom about Liverpool Football Club. And I said, what do you think? Because he'd been announced, I think it was on a Friday, a couple of weeks after Shankly. Um, I think Shankly resigned on July the 12th, something like that, and it was two weeks after that. So I'm sitting eating my cornflakes ready to go to school. And I said to my dad, what do you think, Paisley? He went, he'll never do anything. He hasn't got the personality. <laughs> Shankly had the personality. He could, he could force his ideas and his natural enthusiasm for the game onto the players, Paisley hasn't got that. So he always reminded me, my dad's still alive and he still goes to match. Well, he, he did before uh, the lockdown, you know, but he's in his 90s now and he's still got a season ticket. <clears throat> and I always remind him of that when he's pontificating about some political subject. To be fair, he wasn't far on because he didn't really win much, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> he was, I think what he meant, I mean, he was right about this. He wasn't a great communicator. Yeah. You know, I think even the players said, you know, he was, it was hard to get his opinions across. But, you know, obviously he was very shrewd, you know, and, you know, it was really, though, at that time, there was a scout called Jeff Twentyman, which you might have heard of or might not, but um, Simon Hughes wrote a book about Jeff Twentyman called Secret Daddy of a Liverpool scout, which is an excellent book, one of Simon's first, but, it really, it really instills into you that it was important that the likes of Jeff Twentyman, he was the link between that. I think he came in about 67 uh, to, to recruit for Shankly and he got all those players that, you know, uh, the Clemenses, Keegan's, 
it recommended the memory new, and then it went right through the 70s. And it wasn't until 1986 when he basically he got he got sacked. The official version is that he had to retire for a bad back. But soon as soon as he knew Jeff Twenty was available, took him to Glasgow Rangers. And then he carried on this brilliant recruiting in for Glasgow Rangers. Glasgow Rangers started to do well in Europe as well, you know, which was unheard of, you know. Um, so you've got, I think it was a jigsaw. It wasn't just Shankly, it wasn't just Paisley, it was a team. And that's what I tried to portray in the boot room boys without actually mentioning the word collectivism or so. It was everyone working together, but it needed people like in the background, like Jeff Twenty. And it was actually Dag Leash who, um, who didn't want 20 men. He maybe saw him as old school. Um, Dag Leash had become player manager. He won the double in his first season. So he didn't sack him when he first became manager. He encouraged, well, he wouldn't say sack him. He was encouraged. Uh, basically, Jeff Twenton's uh, family are known. And, uh, his son cuts my hair. I haven't done it for a while, <laughs> but uh, he, tell, he tells me, you know, whatever the club say, he was he, he had to go, he had to go. Because me, sorry, what's your what was your memories of seventy seven and eighty one, the two European Cup victories? Wonder yeah, crazy. Seventy seven was incredible. I didn't make some of my mates made it onto the train, but I had no I had no money and I couldn't. I actually went to Lime Street. I nearly got on the train, but I couldn't. I just I had no money, I just thought I'd only be bumming off them, you know. I was a student at the time. Uh, but I went to 81. Uh, so 77 was like uh, I miss out on all these European uh, matches for some reason. I go always go to I, I try to go to as many as the rounds as I can. But um all the glorious ones like Istanbul, my mum was uh, suffering from cancer, being given a couple of weeks to live. So I asked the doctor, I had me ticket in my hand, I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I can't tell you either way. But my mum survived till September, and that was in the May. And she said a couple of weeks later, why don't you go to the stat ball? You know, and it was one of those, you know. But uh, maybe she should stay away from finals, you know. But uh, Paris was unbelievable because it was an experience, because we went for a week in Paris, you know, and we were playing one of the European greats, Real Madrid. Uh, but I was very surprised I had the fans turned up and very disappointed by the fact we thought it'd be a, a carnival and atmosphere, but it wasn't. It was, it was all Liverpool fans and hardly any Real Madrid fans, a couple of fellas with drums, and that was about it, you know. And it was, wasn't a great game, but neither was Bruges 78, which I went to, and Wembley, that wasn't a great game, and neither was when we beat Tottenham in Madrid. So not necessarily. Don't have to necessarily be great gay as long as your name's on that European trophy. That's all that matters at the end of the day. And here's Dalglish. Over his head nicely, and uh, De Cuba was there, but so is Sanus there. Will he get a shot in? Now Dalglish! Alan Kennedy, and he goes on, and he scores! Alan Kennedy, the unlikely man again, the man who scored in the League Cup final, and now has put Liverpool in front.
as the the seventies progresses into the eighties, you you start getting involved in, in in music. You start, you know, the the, the end. Uh, yeah. The fanzine culture was really kicking in then at a time when football supporters were beginning to be demonised by by politicians and certain people high up in the country will not mention for obvious reasons. Yeah. But um, what, what was the inspiration behind getting involved in the end and music? For me, two loves had always been football and music, you know. I was obsessed with both of them and I always went to concerts. And in fact, in 81, because we'd spent most a load of time looking for this mythical Adidas centre in the uh, in the Paris 81 game, I went back to Paris in the September 81 just to see Paris because I hadn't really gone to any, I hadn't been to Versailles, I'd always wanted to go to Versailles. Uh, and luckily enough, the Clash were playing seven nights with the Beat and Wah, so I was able to get to them as well. But um, in terms of the, in terms of the eighties, that that period, it was it was just something was happening all the time, you know. And yeah. I think uh, the very fact that I went to the Clash gigs, I took a load of photographs. So I was thinking, I've got all these photographs, but I've got no platform for people to see them, you know. And I was thinking. I go to music, I go to concerts, I go to football. I see a lot of people at concerts who have football. Why can't there be a fanzine or a magazine which reflects both? And at the time, I don't know if you know, but at the time, musicians never talked about football. They would not talk, they would not touch it. It was like, you know, it was a dark secret if they liked football, you know. But I thought um, for people like me, who were football fans and also music fans, it was natural to do that. A lot of people were saying, oh, no one will buy that at the match, no one will buy that, you know. And I was thinking, well, I used to read, you know, ragmacks from students selling them on the street. And I also used to use, read fanzines, music fanzines, which had buy in Pro Records, which was a famous independent record shop mm. in Liverpool. I was thinking, these ragmags, the jokes are terrible. Would it be better if there was observational humour? And all the end was, Never had, never, we were proud of this. It never had one joke in it, but people found it a funny magazine because what it was, it was observational humor about what people were doing, what people were up to. And people call it the sort of like the Liverpool's underground Bible of the 80s in many ways. You know, I don't disagree with that. Uh, <clears throat> it was never meant to be that. We were just basically observing what was going on. You know, and uh, the very fact that Liverpool and Everton were both on the rise, the city council was taking on the Thatcher government. Uh, all, it was the perfect ingredients for a magazine, which was, you know, um, anti-establishment, really, you know. It could never have gone mainstream. Probably prematurely bringing it up to date now, and I apologise to Fergus because we do like doing this sort of chronologically, but it's there some sadness that the, the fanzine culture is... It's like, well, it is struggling at the moment. That's real. I, I love yeah. from a northeast point of view, and, and up here we have, you know, I love Supreme at Sunderland. That's been going for years. The market, Newcastle, True Faith. They are now in digital format. Is there some sadness that a print copy of a, mag- a, a fanzine isn't around much? Yeah, I think it is because I think you know it's the it's the physical. It's, it's the way vinyl is still survived. I remember the record company saying to us, we were always promoting vinyl, nineteen ninety. To ninety two, and it got us banned from a few uh, gallop, you know, uh, record, you know, um, little see no colour that we did got banned because we give free 
final 12 inch away with the CDs and, and the single, the vinyl single. Uh, so we were always trying to promote vinyl, but the record companies would be saying, ah, oh, that's within a few years, that'd be defunct. And I think that was, that's been the impression for, for fanzines over the years, you know, that uh, it would go out and it would go onto the line and books would be redundant. I think people still like, even though there might have been a craze for Kindle, and might have been a craze for digital fanzines, one of the most successful is United We Stand, Andy Mitt. And that's still, they still send that to me through the post uh, every month or whatever it comes out, you know. Yeah. And he deliberately sends it. Because <laughs> I've been in it, interviewed a few times. You know, and I like browsing through and I like seeing what they're writing about it, but that's still in, and I think, you know, I think the physical, the very fact you can see them on your bookshelf, you know, uh, I think it's important. Books will never die. I think, you know, uh, fanzines should never die. However, my favourite magazine of all is The End from Liverpool, which concerns itself with music, beer and football, the very stuff of life itself. And these are the people responsible for this fine publication. First of all, Peter, what made you start The End? I wanted to start it because uh, there's no, like, magazine in Liverpool which catered for the type of people that we were, you know, wanting to cater for, like, you know, the average young Liverpoolian. Yeah, but there were, there were fanzines and magazines. Yeah, it was more for, like, students, you know, types or arty-farty types. Go Nowadays, in, in, in football, obviously, we have the whole Sky Sports era. But what Bob Paisley achieved at Liverpool, like, you know, the European Cup success, league success, you know, everything he did at the club. But in a way, um, Sky Sports, they, they tend to, they believe football began in 1992. Um, yeah. As a, as a, as, can you put into war achieved at Liverpool um, for, for kids maybe who, who are brainwashed by, you know, football only beginning in 1992? I think it was, a, it was a domination of not only the domestic game, but the domination of the European game, you know, and that's obviously very important because if you look at it, uh, 70, 77, 78, 81, you know, that's winning the European Cup three times. I mean, it's, you know, that's a dynasty. That's a dynasty. And I think that's always, I think that really affected Ferguson, the fact that he had, a, you know, a great Man United team, but never really dominated Europe. He did well in Europe, no doubt about that, but he didn't do that uh, stuff that Pacey did in terms of win the European Cup three times out of five years or six years, you know. So I think um, that really, so it's, it's European domination, really. I think, uh, and the great teams that have had it, the AC Milan's, Real Madrid's, they've always had a period where, you know, uh, they dominated Europe. And unfortunately for Ferguson, for Man United fans, it was the, it was the rise of the great Barcelona team, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say they were unlucky because uh, that'd be the wrong thing to say. But you know, it was um, in other periods they might have dominated Europe because of the team they had. But uh, we were just we were just all praying Barcelona kept on going, and they did, of course. You know, certainly did. And then, and then I suppose uh, you know, with Joe Fagan taking over then in '85, and you have Heusel, yeah. which obviously you know for Liverpool fans quite. A, I suppose a divisive topic, but what, what what are your memories of that season and not specifically that um, yeah. that European well, Cup event and, and that day well, in in Hoysel? 
I went to Rome in '84, you know, and that was another fantastic trip, you know, absolutely brilliant trip. And we spent a week there outside uh, Rome in a place called Atlas Poli, which was um, wasn't a, wasn't the um, the uh, location for the uh, rich and famous that we'd been told we were going to, you know. But we had a great week there, had a great laugh, and it was a very hostile environment after the game, of course, because Rome had decided that. That they won the European Cup everywhere you went in Rome, it was Campione Cup before the match. We were just the sacrificial lambs, you know. Um, and I also remember being in that, I've never heard a roar like it, it must have been a Coliseum esque roar. They had no roof at the time, the Olympic Stadium. And when they came out into the pitch and, and all their end, uh, the fires were lit and everything was bare, it was like Dante's Inferno. And that, and we were thinking, oh my God, this is going to be a test. You know, we were thinking, you know, we can do it, but, you know, it's, these are going to be angry if they don't win this game. You know? um, there was a lot of trouble afterwards. Uh, we couldn't really relax. We had to get back to the, to the river, uh, the Tiber, where our, our coach parked, you know. Uh, and there was a lot of trouble and there was a lot of tear gas. It was like a war zone. Um, I was thinking, you know, that's... Well, you know, it's bad, it's bad, but not, not envisaging what would happen uh, the next year, you know, and I think, uh, you know, it still, it still saddens me, you know, still sickens me what happens with ISIL. But, um, and I wrote something for the Echo on the uh, 30th anniversary, because one of the lads who was supposed to be doing the Echo article, who was one of the convicted 14 Liverpool fans who were convicted, served time over in uh, Belgium. He was supposed to do it, but he pulled out at the last minute. So the um, the jailers, Paddy Shen, and I'd set the interview up, you see. He said, oh, can you write something then? So I thought, oh, no, because I'm just going to get sick. Because whatever you write, it looks like you're making excuses. You know? But um, I tried to write it, tried to be totally diplomatic. To, but Margaret Thatcher after that game, and this isn't well known, but there's a documentary, and I've got the footage on VHS, actually, sent the chief fire officer for... Um, from London over to Heysel to, uh, to look at the stadium. And he was absolutely disgusted that a football match took place in that stadium. Of course, his report was buried because it didn't fit in with Thatcher's narrative that it was marauding hooligans, you know. So he, he analysed it and said, uh, whatever, whatever, he said, I don't condone people fighting on the grounds, I don't. He said, but this was a disaster. Uh, and it, you know, the ground was condemned anyway. I think it was getting, that was the last game he's ever going to be, you know. I think it's down to, for me, allegedly, you know, brown envelopes passed down you know, uh, to get it there because they were going to build a new stadium afterwards, you know. Terrible decision to hold it there. You know, two of the biggest supported teams in Europe to hold it in an athletic ground. And it was literally the terraces were crumbling. They were crumbling. You know, it's an absolute, uh, you know. And even when I went, got my ticket, I've still got my ticket up in the uh, in, in a book upstairs. When I got my ticket, it was like X, Y, and Z, and the Z was crossed out. And that was Liverpool's end. And everyone was saying, why is that crossed out? So oh, that's going to neutral fans in in Brussels. And, and everyone knew the massive Italian community in Brussels. It was a no-brainer. Two of them were saying, was they going to be at our end? Everyone could foresee some sort of incident. No, no one expected that to happen, of course. 
and to be fatalities. No one expected that, but it was criminal negligence as far as I'm concerned. On the 29th of May 1985, British soccer hooliganism reached its all-time low. Liverpool supporters began a running battle against Italian followers of Juventus at the European Cup final in the Heysel Stadium in Brussels. The result was horrific. The press of bodies trying to escape from the violence led to the collapse of a safety fence. Many victims were trampled to death. Many more were crushed by the weight of their fellow supporters as they struggled in near panic to find a way out. There were stories that, uh, that Juventus didn't want to play. I mean, did, did, did people come and ask you what you felt? No, no, no. That would, would be taken up boardroom level. Uh, we are under the uh, uh, UEFA rules and therefore um, they would decide whether to play or not to play. I don't think either Juventus or the Liverpool players knew the full extent. And even if they had, we'd have still had to carry on our job of, um, of playing the game. But, uh, and I honestly thought that the game itself was quite good. And I, I, I think it's through the officials not letting us know quite, quite fairly. Uh, because if we had, I don't think we'd have got the same type of game. Because I know my heart wasn't in it at the, at the end of it all. It wasn't in it. And on a slightly political theme, you mentioned the narrative of the Prime Minister at the time um, that came into play in, in tragic circumstances um, a couple of years later with Hillsborough. What, what are your memories of, of that day? Um, well, I've, I've, I wrote a piece, it was in The Garden a few years ago actually, about Hillsborough, about the whole experience. You know, I was in another uh, stadium which, you know, it's been proven since, since all the reports and the inquests was, you know, semi-final of that magnitude should never have been held. We knew that as fans. We knew the year before we played Notts Forest, 1988, and I went exactly the same place in the uh, North Stand, which is on halfway line, looking to the Leppens Lane. All through that match, 1988, uh, Liverpool fans were being dragged up into the stands. Now, you, you remember the footage in 89, all through the game. And I was thinking to myself, they're just trying to bunk into the stands because that was the mindset you were thinking, yeah. oh, you know, after the match was saying, what was going on there? And everyone was saying, I was too tight, we couldn't breathe. It was 88 and people wrote to the FA and people, people um, objected uh, to, to being held again at that ground, you know. Uh, it was a police matter, he said, that not as far as that, the cop. Uh, the massive, you know, with loads of turnstiles and Liverpool at the Leopards Lane. But, um, you know, surely the South Yorkshire Police, they dealt with the miners, they stopped miners travelling from village to village to picking. So, how couldn't they just redirect traffic? You know, it just seemed, it shouldn't have been there anyway. It should have been at Old Trafford or somewhere, you know, it would never have happened. No, my, um, my, well, I'd just started to go into games around that time, uh, to home games at, at Newcastle. My dad used to go to away games, and he remembers being at White Hart Lane a couple, I think the season before Hillsborough. Um, it, there was a similar situation there where yeah. it was the very last minute the pen was opened when Newcastle fans could get into, but mm. there was no doubt about it, something would have happened then. But yeah. there was clearly a mistrust of, of football supporters that I guess yeah. kind of remains to this day. 
Well, it was the pen system. If you remember, in the, and this is well documented at the inquests and also the independent panel's report, um, the, the, in 1981, when Tottenham played Wolves, Tottenham had the Leppens Lane, mm-hmm. uh, but the pen system wasn't in operation then. The pen system was brought in um, because of football hooligans. So then you could get a small number of uh, fans, put them in a pen, have a sterile pen, and then home fans could go in the next two pens. And that's what Hills was set up for. In 81, the same thing happened to Tottenham. There was loads of crushing. 40 for the Tottenham fans, it was only broken limbs. They were able to get onto the pitch. And you could also, because of the crushing, near the tunnel, you could spread out, like the cop used to spread out, because there was no pen system. It was the pen system, uh, and the fact that uh, people couldn't get out of the pen, and they couldn't, the crowd couldn't realistically spread and find its own level, which the police would call them, they would find their own level. Um, and they, you know, that was the, the tragedy of Hillsborough, that it was human error. And I always said this, I said this on Newsnight after the, uh, those were independent panel reports, you know. If it's pilot error, you don't blame the passengers. Yeah. You know? And that's what happened. It was error. You know, it was, an, it was a human error. But there's also a bigger conspiracy, which um, Channel 4 News went into shortly after the inquest, when they were talking about um, what had happened in Hatton Road, which was the police station which uh, Duckenfield had gone to, who was in charge on the day. But he'd been fast-tracked. Uh, Brian Moore had been put on garden duty because of a prank that someone in Hamilton Road had been involved in. Hamilton Road was the police station responsible for the police in the hills. Brian Moore got put on garden duty uh, and Duckenfield was supposed to be liaising with him about um, the arrangements for the crowd control. But Duckenfield was so arrogant that he, he didn't want any advice. Uh, he didn't want any help. And this went round Hamilton Road police station. So on the day, when he was looking for, you know, what do we do here, what to do, no one was helping because they were probably thinking, this would be the last minute he ever does. That's the bigger conspiracy, you know, you'll never prove that. Um, but um, Channel 4 News, the day after, went to see his uh, second in command, Brian all second in command, who more or less says on Channel 4 News, and you can find it if you really look hard. But he more says, Brian and me knew there was something terrible was going to happen. We'd been offered tickets off the Sheffield Wednesday uh, chairman the day before. He said, I want you there. I don't trust this guy. And we said, but, and Brian Moore said, I'm not going to that game. I can feel something bad's going to happen, you know, almost predicting what was going to happen, you know. So what, you know, Tuffenfield was very unpopular. He wasn't a copper's copper. Brian Moore was. He was fast-tracked, played golf at the top brass. He was in the Freemasons, it's all on record. Um, and so, you know, that's another thing which you think to yourself, you know. Um, and the, the match was actually televised live in, in Ireland, um, that the FA Cup semi-final. I actually watched it live. But, I mean, can you remember when you had heard that, you know, that 1996 people had, had tragically lost their life at a football match? You know? Well, I was in the ground. I got into the ground just as um, Peter Beatty at the bar. So I think that's timed at four minutes past three because outside, and this this affected me for years. This outside, we were in a bad crush. It was a bad crush. They lost all control. 
Uh, no football fan wants to be to go to a game and see that melee outside the turnstiles. You want to see queues. People, that's what people want to see. If the police don't control it, that's what happens. So we were in a bad crush. So when we got into the ground, probably just at kick-off time or just a minute past three or whatever, we were pleading with the police to open the gates. You know, and I, I felt personally responsible for, I was thinking, oh, they've listened to us and we're, but when you hear testimonies from other fans, everyone was doing that. So that was a great relief when, it, when the inquest and the independent panel report came out. That other people were saying it as well vociferously. I got onto the ground three minutes, four minutes past because hit the bar, sat down, and then looked at the weapons lane. And you could see people on the pitch. I was thinking over. So I immediately thought overcrowding because of my knowledge of the weapons lane. Everyone knew it was a bad end. That's what Liverpool fans call terrible end. That a bad end. Don't go in there. Don't come in there. The people who were when the gates opened, who went the tunnel, there was nowhere else to go. The two side um, sections were more or less empty, and the advance, you know, they could have got there. So what more, what more would have done was cut off the tunnel. He would have had the experience to do that. When Duffinfield was looking what to do, no one told him to to, to uh, put the gates across the tunnel because it was already overcrowded again. So about um, half past three, after just what, witnessing what was going on, I thought this game is not going to start again. Because we always thought, oh, they clear the pitch, it's going to start again. So I went onto the pitch and actually went to the line of policemen, uh, who started off at the penalty area of the cop end, which was the Sheffield Wednesday end. And they were on there to stop a pitch invasion. They thought Liverpool fans were going to be running down to the other end or whatever. Some Liverpool fans had run down to like to say, look, this isn't a pitch invasion. What's going on? They were pointing back and Forest fans um, came out with the, you know, what you'd expect them to come out with, the you scouts bastards. You can, you can hear that on the footage. But within half an hour, the Forest fans were all clapping. Uh, the rescue operation. Because I've never seen anything like it. It was absolutely magnificent. And just as Taylor, who did the original report in 89, said that Liverpool fans initiated and conducted the rescue operation and they were magnificent. And so uh, when I was on the pitch, I said to the police, you know, I'd seen people getting um, CPR at the forest end on the pitch in the penalty area. And we were saying, what's happening? We didn't know anyone was dead. We thought they fainted, you know, whatever. And he said, well, we can't move until we get the orders. All communication had broken down. That was at past three. And you can see the line of police move 10 to 15 yards throughout that period. By the time of 20 to before, they're more or less past the halfway line. But the line is broken by the number of people running through with the advertising orders, which, which they make two stretches. I didn't do that. I just didn't do a thing. I froze because I wasn't in the weapons lane. I was behind that police line, really, you know, just witnessing this going on. And But then I went towards the Lincoln's lane and seen this lad who knew from Liverpool matches, from Liverpool away matches, you know, and uh, he was crying his eyes out. I said, why are you crying? He said, there's people dead, two people dead. Two? Can't be two people, you know. And that was the first time I thought, be, you know, there'd been fatalities. It wasn't until we got back to our car uh, the, the numbers started coming through and there were 36 and 
42, that we kept on going up and up, and we just couldn't believe it. We were in a state of shock. Actually walked, instead of going back to the North Stand, I walked to the Leppens Lane and went through the tunnel out just to see what, you know, see what was going on and saw the crush, the crash barrier, which was crumpled, you know, and I thought, and knowing what crash barriers are like being in the cop over the years, I thought, oh my God, you know, some people have suffered terribly there, you know. Then I went up the tunnel, and the tunnel was on a very, it should have been level, but it was um, very steep. And the reason for that was eye blocks. The reason we thought, um, it, it, and it, it contravened all the green guards for, for the terraces, it was too steep. Um, and their idea was that people would be in a crush going out of the ground not coming into the ground. That's why they made it that steep. But that was after Ibrox, but it had never been changed. You know, and that's why when people went into that tunnel, you know, anyone knows if you're on a slope, you can't push back. It's impossible. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. 15th of April, 1989. That date is etched into the consciousness of the people of Liverpool. As we travelled to Sheffield on that beautiful sunny spring morning, nothing could have prepared us for that day when 96 innocent men, women and children lost their lives at a football match watching the team they loved. For over a quarter of a century, I've known the truth. After all, I was an eyewitness. I saw Liverpool fans, in the words of Justice Taylor in 1989, initiate and coordinate the rescue operation. He called them magnificent. I've always called them the heroes of Hillsborough. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. Yeah, the aftermath of, of Hillsborough was um, not just Liverpool fans, but the, the, the you received a lot of um, criticism. There must be, as a, as a proud Liverpoolian, as a, as a proud Scouser, there must be um, a certain degree of pride in how the, the, the city reacted as a whole, and, and not yeah. just the red side. I think, um, I was thinking, you know, after high school, where you can't apportion blame to certain sections of Liverpool fans, uh, but there's other factors as well, of course. This would be where Liverpool fans will be eulogised as heroes. And that's what my piece I wrote for the Guard was called Heroes. Because that's what they were. Yeah, they were magnificent, yeah, what they did and how they did it, you know. So for a few days we were thinking, and John Ashton, Professor John Ashton was our spokesperson. He was a doctor at the match. He was in, in the stand behind the Leppens Lane. And he described what had gone on and he criticised the rescue service. Proved completely right, um, but he was kept. He was he was off the telly more or less within a few weeks. Uh, same things happen now with the coronavirus. He was all over the television. He was on Question Time. As soon as he started saying unpalatable truths that he thought were truths, he was he was off. It's all come to pass now. Um, what he's been saying at Hillsborough and over coronavirus yeah. uh, was 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 accurate. Um, so the immediate aftermath was thinking, 
everyone's going to blame the police here. There's got to, there's no way, you know, everyone can see what had happened. Uh, but when he got back to the car and he heard that the gates had gone in, my heart sank. The gates had gone in. Oh my God! No. Yeah. Uh, not knowing that that was a lie, because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen the gates being opened. Uh, so you just presume someone from the FA is saying it because he's been tipped off by someone in the police. Duckingfield, we told the lie that the gates had been forced. He had to retract that fairly quickly yeah. because um, other police officers contradicted him. Said, no, you gave the order to open the gates. So he had to retract on that. But for a few days, it felt like blame was being apportioned where we thought, and we thought, you know, be an inquiry and we might get some justice out of this you know until the infamous sun headline which we now know came from white's news agency in sheffield and was um, because of the police getting together going we're going to get the blame for this that's we've got to start defending ourselves you know know, obviously that headline was uh, scuttles it was lies it was you know, every, it was so laughable. I thought at the time, no one's going to believe this. It's so outrageous. No one will believe this. But of course, you know, the you know, lies can spread like wildfire. And that became the narrative for many, many years. You know, we still get it today from certain sections you killed your own fans. We still get it today. After all the truth has been established, we still get it together. You know? So, that lie, um, no, no one was really surprised it was the sun. You know, we'd seen the headlines like Gotcha with the Belgrano. We'd seen the disgraceful headlines over the miners' strike and other disputes, the Wapping dispute, which was carnage. Uh, so, we, you know, we knew where the politics were coming from. But the very fact that it was the truth, they put the headline in the truth. And I think that was Kelvin McKenzie's decision to put the truth. Not allegations, this is the truth, you know, yeah. which is so powerful in terms of black propaganda. Hillsborough obviously had a, a, a profound effect on people across football, not, not just Liverpool fans, but um, someone who came out with, well, he's, he's an icon of the club, Kenny Dalglish, of course, famously went to, to every, every funeral, supported every yeah. family. I mean, did that just solidify his? status as an icon at the club, as a hero at the club? Yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah, I think that a lot, a lot of other players as well uh, did, the, did the very best for. I think with that, you should, um, you know, it shattered him. You can see in his face, can't you? It's the same when I was doing the Boot Room Boys book, I found a photograph of Joe Fagan the day after Heysel, and he's a broken man. Yeah. I think the same could be said for uh, Dad Leash, you know, I think you know, that was, that was the beginning of Liverpool Football Club disintegrating, really. When you walk through Hastel, hold your head up When the game was called off, everybody got changed, went upstairs, met up with the wives. Um, the television was on and um, they were going through what had happened. Um, and really, that was the only time that we became fully, fully aware of what, what was going on because you get, when you're down in amongst it, you get conflicting stories. So I think for me, that was the, the time that it became clearer exactly what had happened. Um, 
And in the journey back, there was, there was no conversation whatsoever on the bus. Liverpool in '95, um, uh, you had the the strikes. You know the the port strikes. The Dockers were on strike. Yeah. Ireland played Holland in a European uh, Championship uh, yeah. qualifier uh, at at Anfield. Um, and I remember Robbie Fowler. Um, he had a he wore a t-shirt. Can, can, can he can you sort of tell us about the? I mean. I suppose in the nineties you had guys coming through like McManaman and Fowler. Yeah. These were kids from the area. Yeah. Um, is that a big thing in Liverpool? Does that mean mean that you you know that you you focus in on them more because they they it's a, it's a kid yeah. who it was up, goes from terrace to um, you know onto the pitch as such. Certainly, think for local players, you know, it can be difficult as well because there's so much pressure on them, you know. But for local players. You remember Tommy Smith, Ian Callaghan, Chris Lawler, you know, all those uh, local Jimmy Case and the years, Phil Thompson. So there's been a tradition of that, but there's a lot of pressure on them as well. The crowd, I mean, Callaghan had, Callaghan now is revered in Liverpool. But I remember when he was uh, playing at Anfield his first you know, few seasons, he got a lot of stick. He was actually arguing with the Kevin Rowan after the time. Uh, you know, and he was right. Because they're armchair fans, you know, and uh, but so they can get. I think it wasn't until Benitez turned them into a centre half and got away from the fullback positions that you know he really developed uh, as a player and uh, he said all the right things, you know, in the press and he did a lot of community work, especially in Bootle where he was from. So people people hear about those things. So it's important, you know. I think people like him. The crowd takes the heart, but they can also turn on them quickly if they have the, if they have get bad games, you know. But I think it's there's a lot of pressure on local players, a lot of pressure, you know. But do you think it, it, it means the badge means more to them than than guys like who come from nowadays you've got an influx of continental stars? I think Canada thought that. You know, I think there's some of the players that he played with, you know, he could probably strangle him. You know, he was on record saying that he didn't like the way the attitude more, you know, but yeah, I think he, even though Carrick was brought up uh, in Evertonian, it's, it's, it's pride in winning for, you know, and it's, it's, it's pride for, you know, in terms of local people thinking, you know, you're going to have to see them in the shops and if you're not giving them 100%, I think it's all about, as Shankills used to say, that's enthusiasm. If you don't display that, and you know, we've had players like Duff and Balotelli should never have been near a Liverpool share, you know. So yeah, I think local players are, are revered and if they do well, but the, you know, the crowd can be very, very uh, hurtful to them as well because they are local, you know. Um, just, just moving on, I'm really wary that we've skipped past the 90s almost here. Um, <laughs> you don't want to mention the 90s. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, Even though Roy Evans was, you know, uh, was that much? He, he was so close to having that team. You know, of, uh, he played fantastic football. But maybe he just lacked a little bit of discipline, or maybe he was just unlucky that United were on the ascendancy then. I, th I think being from Newcastle, I can relate to that. So, um, but again, quickly moving on. Um, <laughs> when, when Evans left, when the the kind of dual of the joint management with 
Pouliot didn't really work out. Was there was there a sadness around the club around the city because obviously that was kind of the last of the the, the kind of bootroom boys. Yeah, well, I think the, as I say, I think the bootroom have been uh, dismantled. Really started under Daglish with twenty million going, you know, and then it was physically dismantled, brick by brick. Uh, it was knocked down for the Premier League because they didn't have media facilities and the bootroom was identified. So there's a picture in my book of someone sweeping up the bootroom and it's, you know, looking at it, it's very sad looking at it. But um, Sumas gets the blame for that, but he, because he was the manager at the time. Yeah. But it already started then, you know, the bootroom was seen, I think, but I think the club were trying to modernise. I think they were aware that Man United were getting their act together. I think um, the chair, you know, and uh, John Smith and uh, Robinson, you know, they were both saying that Man United ever got their act together. We've got to be worried because the, uh, the financial implications of that bigger ground, you know, the commercialism of the club. I mean, Liverpool was was regarded as a corner shop, wasn't it? Everyone was like, had a bit of pride in that, the fact that after, say, after Istanbul, the club shop was shut, you know, because they were all in Istanbul, you know, mad things like that, you know. But I think um, during that period, there was a, certainly a feeling of, uh, we we're going to be the nearly men, you know, and there's so many things that, it's decisions like this, like, Schmeichel wanted a trial at Anfield. He wanted a trial. He wants to play for Liverpool. Uh, Cantona wanted to come to Liverpool. Um, it's on record. Uh, Platini, when Liverpool played Auxerre, knocks on the door, says, hey, I want, I've got this kid in, in, in France. He's a great player. You know, a bit of an extrovert, but a great player. Uh, were you interested? And soon as looked into him and said, he didn't like his disciplinary record. What is he on about? Is this a penalty record? You know, you would have thought Sunas would have embraced him, but he's like me, you know. And, uh, but eventually he went to Sheffield Wednesday for a trial a few months later. Uh, we played them in November. I think he went in January for the trial. And then Leeds got word of him. He was having uh, trials on um, indoor pitches because the frozen pitches outside. Leeds got word of him. He had this genius and snapped him up. Um, he had to leave Leeds for various reasons we wouldn't want to go into. But um, so if Susan said, yeah, that could have transformed Liverpool's history, couldn't it? Yeah. It's all these little decisions which are part of the jigsaw. But I think in the 90s, going back to Evans, they were like trying to get back to a semblance of dynasty. Uh, but it already, it was a difficult job. I think it had already gone We've spoken a lot about managers and players that got Liverpool as a club. Um, certainly one of the next managers to come in, Rafa Benitez, ticks every box in that respect. Um, he had great success with Valencia, probably unexpected success with Valencia yeah. in Spain. What, what sort of reaction was there to his appointment? Yeah, it was it was brilliant reaction. So so much of a reaction that half of, uh, half of Bootle won, won on the bookies because I think it was leaked. That he was coming. Um, can't say he leaked that information, but uh, anyway, when he came, everyone was thinking because we'd seen the Valencia team and Anfield. I think it was the decision was based upon who would you, who would you, you know, who's the best team you play against, and most of the players had said Valencia, so that's how they pursued him. I think uh, at the time, Mourinho was also getting touted. 
because he did that celebration at Old Trafford where he runs along the pitch and slides on his knees, I think. Uh, in front, uh, oh, I think I think they went off him, I think. I think they went off at the idea. Because Mourinho wants to be the Liverpool manager. No one no else want that, you know. Um, so anyway, I got told the story that they went over a bit paddy and a few people went over to Valencia to see Benitez and, you know, it was a comedy, you know, almost like he had a lawyer with them and he, he comes down and his dressing gowns and everything. But everyone, when he when he arrives, everyone's thinking, fantastic, that Valencia team were brilliant, you know. Um, I, you know, so believe, we weren't expecting a magic wand because it take to build a dynasty. We weren't expecting a magic wand with Klopp. You've got to have, you know, two to three seasons to get it right. Took Shank, Shankly that, you know. Uh, but with Benitez uh, in his, you know, in his first season, wins wins in Istanbul. It was like it was okay. This is, you know, he's the magician, you know. Nicely. There's all sorts of stories about Istanbul, isn't it? You know, about right. half time and yeah. the fact that he picked Harry Kuhl and didn't pick Didier Man, you know. Just on on Istanbul, one one player I genuinely can't believe we haven't mentioned yet, Stephen Gerrard. Um, yeah. when, when you look at his performance, people talk about inspirational characters and and players going above and beyond. Yeah. His performance in the second half in Istanbul was um, would make you proud to call him the captain of your club. Yeah, he was beautiful. You know, if it was ever going to be a Roy of the Rovers uh, performance, that was it. You know, the way when when he just had, you know just a head on it, it goes in. You're thinking. My God, and then he goes like that's you know, we can do this. And it was the belief, you know, you could see that he believed. Yeah. Uh, I think they were going at that stage at our time for damage limitation. I think that had, you know, it was a biblical performance, it was very, you know, a Royal Rovers performance, that was it. You know, he, he more or less dragged the club from, from the uh, from the coattails, you know. He's like you could see him when he scored that impossible header, you know. Uh, and it was the belief, but also going back to what Shankly always used to say, that natural enthusiasm, the power the team on. for the European Footballer of the Year, Starman in the Milan side, must score. He must score. It's a net! Istanbul is is always going to have a special place in my heart for the rest of my life. Um, it was the biggest night uh, of my career, um, one of the biggest nights of the club, the club's history, um, and probably still to this day the best Champions League final has ever been. The, the arrival of um, new owners as well probably ended any hopes of really building something long term. The Hicks and Gillette, you were very very vocal in, in, in your opposition to them, quite right. Yeah. Um, what do you remember of that time? I mean, it was such a, an unstable time for the club. We never thought we'd ever be marching the club. And a lot of people, a lot of Liverpool fans used to say to us, you're marching on the club, that's Newcastle behaviour. You know, which is... You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's a bit demeaning for a well-famous club, you know, and I knew what they meant, but they didn't realise the situation we were in. He didn't really realise that situation. Uh, and what was happening was 
Bernie says he was leaking stuff to certain journalists and also um, some lad I knew from school uh, who's Owen Brown, you probably know him from Newcastle. Yeah. He was he was telling us what was going on behind the scenes, basically saying these owners have done exactly what they said they wouldn't do. They wouldn't put debt on the club. They've done it through a convoluted system of hedge funds and holding uh, holding the accounts. But they've basically done what the Glazers have done. Uh, so that alerted everyone. Very fact that we'd um, you know they were they were welcome with open arms. There wasn't much criticism for them. I did an article at the time saying, "Be careful what you wish for," uh, and it was only on it wasn't it was it was only on an internet site. It wasn't on uh, um, it wasn't a physical magazine, so it probably hasn't test you know lasted the test of time. But I was saying, "Be careful what you wish for," because you know this fellow reminds me of John Wayne. You know he's a right winger. Yeah. He's young. Unfortunately for them, they must have all. Grandy Oaks plans about a spaceship in Stanley Park. Um, it was the financial crash. Now, they could never have predicted that. But the, the whole way they set up the club meant that with the financial crash, it meant that they were in trouble. And they could not afford anything, really. They were only paying off the debts to the RBS uh, for the for the loans that they take them. You know. Yeah. The arrival... The it activated the fans. Activated and never thought... Well, but it was only ever, I'd say, 10% of the proof fans were behind us. Spirit of Shankly. It was almost like a, a 1980s political meeting. We had a meeting in the Sandon, two to three hundred people there. Uh, called it the, uh, originally it was called the Sons of Shankly. And so someone put the hand up in the audience, one of the, uh, one of the women in the audience, going, you're not calling it that. What about us? You know, it was, great, it was a great contribution. So, Got changed the spirit of Shankfield. You, know, you know, it was like, it was completely in flux, but almost like a revolutionary situation. Yeah. People were getting decisions, were getting made, and people were saying, well, March on this. Um, Nicky Hunt wanted, he was one of the instigators of the SOS, wanted to go to, um, to Dallas to, to chain himself to Hicks's uh, gates, you know, and there was all sorts going on. Uh, the arrival of, of John Henry um, and, and subsequently Brendan Rogers as well. There's a lot of talk, particularly at the moment, which we will come on to about the ending the uh, the period without winning the, the top flight title. Um, that season with Suarez and Gerard and Sturridge and Sterling, I mean, that must have felt as close as I could get. Yeah, unexpected though. Yes. Yeah. Totally unexpected. So it wasn't like it is now. Where you know the clock's building something, you know. In fact, uh, during the season uh, before the lockdown, I got everyone to do a toast in the pub, all the lads I go with, it, to not win the league in 2013 14. <laughs> so it's sort of like exercise that ghost really. But they had won the league 2013 14. I think Brendan Rodgers would have been given a lot more time, you know. And in a way, he wasn't the real deal for me. He was okay, but he's perfect at Leicester. Be perfect at places like Leicester. He's not, he's, you see what he did in Europe. He played a second team in Europe. And Liverpool don't do that. That, that was the beginning of the end for him because yeah. it so annoyed people the fact that he put out a weakened team against Real Madrid. You know, can't tell it because, you know, you know, that's how, you know, that's how. He didn't, didn't seem loyal either to, to Glasgow Celtic. I mean, he was on the verge of oh. winning 10 in a row and, and left for, for yeah. more money. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I think, you know, he's obviously got that trait in his character. Uh, but I think it was unexpected with, with Rodgers. Obviously, we wanted to win the league and we were all devastated. And it looked at one point that we were going to win the league, but I think he was a little bit naive in his tactics. You know, that game against Chelsea, but he was sussed out, really. And all we needed was a nil nil. We didn't need to attack, you know, but um, I think in the great scheme of things, the fact that he didn't win the league has been a blessing, really, because we've got uh, Jürgen Norbert Klopp, I mean, and like he is for me the nearest thing we've had to Shanti. He, if he stood for election, you know, next year he'd sweep to power in Germany. In fact, I don't know if you saw Football Focus, a lot of his uh, friends and old teammates were saying exactly that, you know, that he's got this enthusiasm and. And it, what you see is what you get. It's not an act. You always got the impression of Brendan Rodgers. It was a bit of an act. He read a couple of books on Shankly. Yes. Shankleyism was, and was regurgitating. But with Klopp, you know that's what he's like. You know. It's for you out there. It's for you. It's incredible. I hope you stay at home or go in front of your house if you want, but not. Do no more and um, celebrate it. It's it's all here and it's all here. We, we do it together in this moment and um, it's a joy to do it for you, I can tell you. Peter, it, it has been a, a, a wonderful chat. Um, to finish off, we always ask people if they'll just answer 10 uh, quick-fire questions um, oh. on their career. Um, Fergus, I will pass over to you. He has the questions in hand, if, if you don't mind. First question, Shankly or Klopp? Shankly. Okay. Not, uh, 1977 European Cup final force win or Istanbul? 77. Uh, Ian Rush or Mo Salah? Ian Rush. Alan Kennedy or Andy Robertson? Andy Robertson. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lacoste or Sergio Tacchini? Uh, that's a hard one, man. Uh, Sergio Lacoste. <laughs> uh, best away support at Anfield? Best away support? Um, in terms, I mean, it's always supposed to be one. I'd say Paris Saint-Germain. Okay. Um, best European venue visited? San Siro. Bovril or tea? Tea. Yorkshire tea. Yorkshire tea. Worst Liverpool strip? The green one. I hated the green one. The fleck on it. I don't know what year it was. Uh, best shanty quote? Uh, so many. I was made for Liverpool and Liverpool was made for me. Yeah.